Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56. All right, God, we thank you and praise you for another day. By your grace and mercy, Lord, that we are uh, moving from glory to glory, God, that you have saved us and redeemed us. You have sanctified us, Lord. We walk in this world and not alone by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And one day unto glorification when we will see you face to face. And what a joyous day that will bring. We echo John who says, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. As we look at the woes of this world, uh, Lord, uh, we, we can't help but ask for that, Father. When you will set the wrong right, when you will set the crooked straight. Father, I thank you for this word tonight and, and for the teachings in Isaiah, Lord, just in the midst of the Old Testament, a display once again of your love for us. How glorious a thought. Just help us as we study now. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in chapter 56, 57, 58, 50, no, I'm kidding, <laughs> we'll probably stop after 58 tonight. And these chapters, these three especially, 56, 57, and 58, it's God exhorting the, the audience. And, and the audience, as Isaiah was writing, was Judah at the time, but certainly as we read the Old Testament scriptures, we can, we're grafted into that and we can we can glean from the Old Testament teachings all that he would have for us. And we need to be wise in that. Not everything that's said in the Old Testament applies to the church today. Because of the new covenant, because of the things that we are under, uh, it's a little bit different. So, um, But the, the, the message is still the same. And the message tonight is something we all need to hear again. And that is, we need to do what's right. We need to do the right thing. That if we are followers of Christ, we should be doing that which is right. It's not a real popular message, not one that ever has been. It's more fun to do the wrong thing. But as followers of Christ, we're called to live holy lives. In light of the suffering servant, which is what we studied in Matthew chapter 53, Jesus coming and having to die on our behalf, the chastisement of our sin was upon his shoulders, there should be a God-ordained response in light of the Messiah suffering on our behalf. And these chapters are the prescription of holy living. These are the things that we are to be doing in light of our suffering Savior. So it says in Isaiah 56, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Keep justice and do righteousness, he says. Keep what is fair. As followers of the one true God, we should be seeking justice, social justice, spiritual justice, in this world. And we should be doing what is right. Why? Well, he tells us there in verse 1, because salvation is about to come. 
So he says, for my salvation is about to come. Now think about that for a second. As Isaiah is writing, Jesus isn't going to come for another 700 years. <laughs> and he says, my, my salvation is about to come. You've got to remember, God's timing is a little different than ours. Remember last year? Or last, see, last week? <laughs> Not last year. Remember last week? We said, uh, God said in his scripture that uh, I'm going to punish you for just a mere moment. And how long did he punish the nation of Judah? 70 years. So now he says, my, my salvation is not far away. My, it, it's, it's coming near. Uh, my salvation is about to come. So 700 years about, that's, that's basically the same when it comes to God. But the point being is he's coming. And in light of that, we need to remember that and act accordingly. The exhortation in light of salvation coming which is Jesus' finished work on the cross, is that our lives should be about keeping justice and doing righteousness. It says in verse 2, Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. But the man who is blessed is the man who does these things, keeping from defiling the Sabbath, and keeping his hand from doing any evil. For the Jewish person, for the young man or woman growing up, for anybody that was under the banner of Judah, one of the greatest ways to show devotion to God was to honor the Sabbath. It was, it was to, to keep one of the top ten commandments, number four if I'm not mistaken, to honor the Sabbath, that God had set a time, a special time, that they would rest. It says in verse um, 16 of Exodus chapter 31. This is the command that God gives. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Notice it says that the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is to be ongoing. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. What I want us to know from that is the Sabbath is to be kept by the children of Israel, is what it specifically says, not the church. Why is that? Because Jesus becomes our Sabbath rest in accordance with Hebrews. So for us to honor the Sabbath is to honor Jesus in the Christian walk. Why did God want them to do this? Why did God want Israel to honor the Sabbath? It was a sign to the nations around them, that they trusted God for their provision. Why? Because every other nation worked every day. You didn't, if you were part of an, if you worshiped another deity, if you lived in another nation, you worked every day. You didn't take a day off. It was constant from sun up to sundown. You worked every day. God pulls the nation of Israel out of that, sets up and establishes a different plan and says, you can honor me this way by taking a day off, by demonstrating that you're different than the rest of the world. God said they would be blessed by honoring God, by keeping the Sabbath. And that part holds true to us today as well. If we devote ourselves to honoring Him, we'll be doing the very best we can with our lives. He says in verse 3, Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people, 
nor let the eunuch say, here am I, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's such a beautiful invitation, an incredible invitation from God. That while in the midst of this old covenant where God is married to, God is, God is sh- showing his love to the nation of Israel, in the middle of that, and that's his prescribed method for demonstrating his love for humanity, he extends this fantastic invitation to everyone. To the foreigner, it said. To the eunuch, it said. Welcoming them as part of the family. Anybody who would be devoted unto him is the invitation. Just another demonstration of how great his love is for us. What a glorious thing. It says um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This beautiful invitation. Think about this. Consider the the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Right? Philip roll, rolls up on the, the Ethiopian eunuch riding in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah. And at the time, at least when Philip arrives, he's reading Isaiah chapter 53. And he says, could somebody explain this to me? And so Philip does. But I would imagine that the Ethiopian eunuch continued to read into chapter 54 and 55 and 56. And as he's reading these things, consider as he heard that invitation to, to anybody who would want to come, to the foreigner or the eunuch, it's almost like I could imagine the, the text coming alive in that moment as he sees an invitation written 700 years before he lived for him to come. No wonder he wanted to get baptized right away. Here's some water. What, what keeps us from getting baptized? He recognizes the love God has for him and for us all. It says in verse 6, also the son of the foreigner who joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to, the, and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and hold fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That sounds familiar. We've heard that before, and we'll talk about that in a second. God's plan of salvation was to, never to be limited to just the nation of Israel. That wasn't God's plan. That's far too small a plan for our great God. No, His love reaches to the end of the earth. It says their, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, speaking to the foreigner for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus cites that verse in Matthew chapter 21. It says in there uh, in verse 12, uh, Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. 
and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus' issue in that time was with the money changers, how they were limiting people coming to God. Hopefully you're familiar with that story that you know what they were doing. Uh, But they were limiting access to God. And that's access that God had granted in this passage that we're reading in Isaiah. God extends the invitation and says, everybody's welcome. And then 700 years go forward, Jesus on the scene, and there are people limiting this access that God had provided for them. It says in verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others beside those who are gathered to him. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forests. We need to remember that all of this is being written with a looming judgment on the nation of Israel. They were headed to Babylon. They were, they were, the, the land was going to get its rest. God is saying in verse 9 there, all you beasts of the field come to devour. He's saying, let's get this started. Come, come get this work started. Why? The sooner the chastisement begins, the sooner the punishment will be over. Said that to your kids? <laughs> you may as well get this over with because it's coming. So you can start now or you, we can wait, but it's still coming. So the sooner you get it started, the sooner it will be over. Verse 10 is interesting. It says, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Obviously, this is not a compliment. This is his watchmen are blind. Whose watchmen? The nation of Israel. The, the, the religious leaders of the day. He's describing the spiritual leaders of Israel as blind watchmen. Hi, is there anything that would keep you from being one of our security guards? Well, I'm blind. Okay, let me mark that down. And you're not getting a call back. That's not a good qualification for a watchman. <laughs> the one who watches can't see. A guard dog who can't guard is of no value. <laughs> he sees somebody, but he can't bark. That's of no value. And that's the, the spiritual condition, the spiritual leaders of the day. They're, they aren't on watch. They aren't caring for. They aren't guarding those who they were entrusted to guard. It says in 11, yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way. Everyone for his own gain, from his own territory. These are greedy dogs, it says in verse 11. First of all, consider that God is calling the leaders of Israel dogs. The leaders of Israel called people that weren't Jews dogs. That was like a a slap. That was like a, a racial comment in those days. And that's what God is calling them. And they're greedy dogs. Their lust will never be satisfied. They look to their own way, everyone for his own gain. And that's true of lust, and that's true of greed. One of the things we need to recognize as we are tempted by those things continually, greed, lust, will never be satisfied. There will always be a desire for more. You can't satiate that appetite. You have to... You have to change your appetite. You have to change, go for something else. In 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, now godliness 
with contentment is great gain. It's in the pursuit of godliness, not greed and lust, that we will find that contentment and great gain. But they look to their own way, is what it says. What kind of shepherd doesn't look after his flock? But that's what they were doing. That's a bad shepherd. Contrast that with what we learned on Sunday. Jesus, right, as he got out of the boat. What did he say? He, he, he noticed that they, they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them, is what we read on Sunday. In comparison with these shepherds who are after their own gain. Verse 12 says, come, one says, I'll bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. All they're interested in is pursuing their own pleasure. Tomorrow's party will be even better than today's. That's the lust of the flesh. And we're commanded not to chase after it. Now, there would have been no chapter break. So verse 1 of 57 says, the righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. The blind watchmen were failing to do their jobs because they couldn't see, by, blinded by their own lust. And the result is that even the righteous were perishing. Edmund Burke says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. It's not that we, as good men and women, have to turn against that good to, for evil to flourish. It's when we stop doing good. It's when we do nothing that evil will triumph. And that's exactly what was happening in this scene. So verse 2 says, He shall enter into peace of the righteous. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of the sorceresses, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. This is strong language God is writing here. But that's the bed that Judah had made for themselves. They chose to pursue idolatry. They chose to remove God from the throne of their heart and pursue other things, placing placing supreme emphasis on idolatry. They were committing adultery on their first love, which is God. Hear this. We cannot have both God and the world. We cannot have both God and the world. We must choose one. And no choice is a choice. We cannot have both God and and this world. Joshua chapter 24, 15 would say, choose this day whom you will serve. Because we can't serve both. You can't serve both God and mammon, it would say in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? God's even, he's, 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 almost picking a fight at this point. Who do you think you're messing with, boy? That's what God is saying in this. Who who do you think you're ridiculing? Who do you think you're picking on? Who do you think, do you really think you want to go toe-to-toe with me? Inflaming yourself with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cleft of the rocks. That's a direct assault on the worship of Ashtoreth and Moloch. 
Under every green tree, they would worship Ashtoreth, which was the god of fertility, with every sexual perversion known to man. And then slaying the children in the valleys, that was a worship to Molech. They would have a, a bronze statue that they would heat the, the arms of the statue till they were red hot and then throw their newborn children onto those arms to die. And they called it, and they worshiped, and, and then they tried to worship God at the same time. It says, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They... They are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? You see, they were worshiping Ashtoreth and Molech, and then they tried to worship God too. Well, we can have both, can't we? We can have the best of this world, and we can have the best of God. We can have our cake and eat it too, is what they were thinking. And the answer is no. Either God is the priority in our lives, or he is not. Remember what Elijah said to the prophets of Baal? Or of the prophets of Baal? It says in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Make your choice. God's drawing a line in the sand. He says in verse 7, On a lofty and high mountain you've set your bed. And there you went to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. He's he's saying you've jumped in bed with these false gods. You've tried to make us all one big happy family. And God's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. To adulterate something is to make it impure. That's what adultery is. You're making your marriage bed impure. And Judah defiled her marriage bed by mingling her soul with false gods, tainting her relationship with God. And that's why they're being shipped off to Babylon. It says, you went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. In verse 10 there it says again, you are wearied in the length of your way. Chasing after idols is exhausting. It's a wearying thing that will leave you empty, that will leave you still wanting, that will leave you still hungry and tired in the chase. Contrast that with what he said in verse 31 of chapter 40. Those that wait upon the Lord, they renew their strength. So chasing after idols, you're going to be exhausted, wearied in the length of your way. Yet waiting upon the Lord, our strength is removed. Yet They didn't heed this advice. They continued chasing after these idolatrous things, even though they found no satisfaction in them. So he says in verse 11, And of whom have you been afraid or feared, that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I've held my peace from of old, 
that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. Do we want to depend on our own righteousness? I don't. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Cry out to the idols that you serve, he's saying. Maybe they'll save you. Oh wait, you had to craft their ears out of wood. They're not going to save you. You have to nail your God down so that it doesn't fall over in the night. Cry out to the idols. Maybe they'll save you. Oh, maybe they're in the bathroom. Maybe they're deeply thinking. That's what Elijah said as he was mocking the prophets of Baal. Maybe they've gone on vacation. Maybe that's why they don't hear you. Notice in the middle of verse 13, it says, But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. But, that's such a great word. The contrast there. God always offers an alternative to sin. And the alternative is always better than sin. God always offers an alternative to sin, and the alternative is always better than sin. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up. Prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, set apart. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. In order for the people of God to come back to him, in order for repentance to happen, they would need to recognize the error of their way in pursuing idols and humble themselves. Key to repentance is humility. It's recognizing you've done wrong. You've pursued the wrong thing. And swallowing your pride and walking back toward God. But look at the beautiful invitation to the one that does that. To the one who humbles himself. We dwell in a high and holy place with the one who inhabits eternity. Sorry, that's beautiful. That sounds amazing. We, the ones who humble themselves, dwell in a high and holy place with the one who inhabits eternity. I'm sorry, that is far better than the passing pleasure of sin. To dwell with him who owns eternity. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. Verse 16 says, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. This, this chastisement that was coming was for a set time, 70 years. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I've seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. 
One of the things we can hear in that is God is not done with us when we're backslidden. Sometimes we pursue a a sin after another sin after another sin, and we recognize that we're far down the path, far away from God. And it seems as though it's insurmountable, perhaps not a way back. What I hear in these verses is when we are in that state, He will heal us. He will restore us. God isn't done with us when we're backslidden. Verse 19, I, God says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him through the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the suffering servant. By his stripes, we are healed. Peace is brought to us, and the fruit of the lips that he creates is praise. The response that you and I have from our lips, from our lives, is worship. A life rightly brought back to God in humility produces praise to Him. How do you know if somebody's properly repentant? They're praising the Lord. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. Quite a contrast, a stark reminder that outside of God's redemption, there is no peace. Cry aloud, he says in verse 1 of 58. Spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they may seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness They did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. God is telling Isaiah here in these verses to cry out. To cry out against the people's empty religious practices. Cry out because their hearts were far from them, though they tried to honor him with their lips. With hypocrisy, they came to God. Look at their defense in verse 3. Why, why we fasted, they say. And have you not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Their defense was, we're fasting for you, God. We're punishing ourselves in this way. And God says, they're doing it with the wrong heart. They were trying to hold God hostage. I'm not going to eat, God, until you give me what I want. That's not the right way to approach God. That's the wrong heart. It says in verse 5, it is a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul. Or is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out a sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? God's asking. Do you think that a proper fast is all about self-degradation? 
If I just beat myself up enough, then God will have to honor me? That's not proper. That's what the prophets of Baal did to try to appease their God. That's not what God is after when we fast. Go on a hunger strike to show that I love God. That's not what it's about. Look at what he says in verse 6. Is this not the fast that I've chosen? Here's, here's, what, here's what I pick, is what God is saying. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. The fast that God has chosen is to deny ourselves to care for those near us. You know what? That sounds a lot like love. When we deny ourselves to care for those who are in our lives, that's living others-centered. That's the fast that God has chosen. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear God. That's That's the result of proper fasting the light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. What is the purpose of fasting? We struggle with this today because you want me to give up fast food for the day, Lord? Are you crazy? I can't live without my Big Mac. Is that really what God is asking of us? And so, so many, so few Christians actually understand or consider or practice Fasting because of their lack of understanding. Fasting detaches us from this world. You guys recognize this world is not our home, right? Fasting detaches us, detaches us from this world. And prayer, prayer and fasting are supposed to go together. Prayer connects us with his world. Prayer connects us with heaven. Fasting detaches us and it helps us to release from this world. And prayer connects us. They go hand in hand. It says in Acts chapter 13 of the new church, the young church, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. As they were trying to figure out what to do with Barnabas and Saul, they spent time fasting. They were detaching from this world. They were praying, connecting to what the Spirit would say, and they received direction. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, speaking of a husband and wife, it says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's detachment from this world, connecting with our Father. A proper fast should draw us closer to Him. And the way that will be evident is by the love that we have for Him, the love that we have for others. He says in verse 9, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. That's what we want. We want that intimate communication with God. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, 
So the results of fasting, the the result of praying, is a greater intimacy with God. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. And strengthen your bones. You shall, not, you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I don't know about you, but that sounds really good. I want, I want that kind of relationship with God. I want my bones to be strengthened. I get too weary too quickly. Oh, I want a satisfied soul in the midst of drought. I want to be like a watered gar- a garden. Constantly refreshed. Constantly alive. That sounds good. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall rise up. I'm sorry. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets, of streets to dwell in. When our hearts are aligned with God through prayer, through fasting, we will accomplish the mission that he has prepared for us. We shall be the ones who repair the breach, the restorer of the streets. We'll sh- the, our, our generations, those that come after us, will be training them in godliness and righteousness. They'll, uh, they'll accept the mission of God. Turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, And shall honor him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. We have to choose. It's God or this world. Turning toward God means turning away from our own way, our own pleasure, our own words. We become his ambassadors. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, he says in 14. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our lives should be constantly coming back to the cross. Martin Luther said that our lives should be a life of repentance turning back toward him. And I agree with that. But with less of a focus on ourselves and a greater focus on Jesus, our Savior, and in light of what he has done, in light of the suffering servant of chapter 53, we need to realize that we can't serve two gods. God and I cannot occupy the same throne. We must love one. We must hate the other. Our lives need to be lived in response to what our Messiah has done for us. Do we hear that tonight? Our lives should be lived in response to what Messiah has done for us. Paul echoes that thought. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to Him, 
For this is your spiritual act of worship. It's in light of the suffering servant that we make a choice that we're going to honor God with our lives, that we're going to do the right thing as we went back to verse 1 of 56, that we're going to keep justice and do righteousness, not to earn merit with God, but in response to what God has done on our behalf. That's worship. That's the response that we have with our lives. Pray we wouldn't merely be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers, as James would command us. May we seek to honor him with our lives. Amen? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for bearing a cross that we so rightly deserve. And Lord, we've ascended the mountain to the throne the throne in our hearts, and we've tried to sit in that seat ourselves. We've committed idolatry in our hearts. And yet you loved us enough to send your Son that we might have forgiveness of sin. You've redeemed us, and you've exchanged our wretchedness for your righteousness. And we don't bear our own righteousness any longer. We bear yours. You've welcomed us into your family. You've called us your sons and your daughters, adopted into the royal family of God. We're given new names, Lord, as part of that royal family. And if we just think for a moment, it's right. It rings true in our heart that if we are part of a royal family, a royal priesthood, Lord, then our lives should show it. Our lives should reflect it. And Lord, I see that you're drawing a line in the sand tonight through this, this word for all of us in this house that we wouldn't serve two gods, that we would choose today whom we will serve. I pray with all of our heart that it would be you with all that we have. May we surrender our lives to you, Father. Father, as we go from this place, we pray that you would be with us. Father, until we can meet again, until we see you face to face, we are in desperate need of you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.